Turn this on. Here we are at the beginning of a new year, 2012. It'll probably be June by the time I start writing 12 instead of 11. Um, but here we are nonetheless. How are we to begin a new year? I, I find it great that the first day of a new year is, in fact, the Lord's Day, a Sunday. How are we to begin? And where do we begin? Well, in answering that question, I think it might be helpful to answer some other questions. Uh, and from their answers, perhaps begin to get an answer to our question. I think the first question we need to ask and answer is, what does it mean to be a Christian? This may seem so basic, too basic to be asked and answered, but indulge me if you would. You see, many who call themselves Christians, they're Christians because it's something they've done with their heads or in their heads. It's something they've figured out with their moral lives. It's something that they've started to enjoy in common with friends. And then, to sort of put icing on the cake, they go to church on Sunday. I would suggest to you that this is exactly the reverse of what is intended. Being a Christian, as one writer puts it, is about gazing at the God in whose image you were made and in love reflecting that that image out into the world. What it means to be a Christian begins with worship. It must begin with worship. In our text today, which will in fact be two chapters of Revelation, chapters 4 and 5, we learn about worship. First, let's look at chapter 4 briefly. And here, in a sense, we are allowed to peek behind the curtain, so to speak, as John is taken up into heaven, to the throne room of God. If you look at verse number 1, After this I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. And John describes what he has seen in the very throne room of God himself as he steps through the open door. We're looking through John's eyes in this passage. And what we hear and what we see tells us a great deal about worshiping the one true God. You see, what John sees is not some remote future, something that is in the distant future. What he is seeing is what is going on right now. It is the regular life of heaven. This is the worship of God, which is going on all the time. And what we see through John's eyes should be astonishing to us. First of all, he tells us of the one who is worshipped in verses 2 and 3 and then 5 and 6. First of all, verses 2 and 3. At once I was in the spirit and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, a rainbow resembling an emerald encircled the throne. Then verse 5, from the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings, rumblings and peals of thunder before the throne. Seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. Also before the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass clear as crystal. It is interesting that of all the things John tells us in this passage on worship, what he tells us about the one who is to be worshipped, I think, is the least clear. I think he is somewhat obscure, but he is in the presence of God. That sets the context. And now he tells us of the worshippers and their worship. The worshippers are found in verse 4 and then the second part of verse 6 through 8. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones, 
And seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. And then verse 6. In the center around the throne were four living creatures, and they were covered with eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion. The second was like an ox. The third had a face like a man. The fourth like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under his wings. Who are these 24 elders? Well, as when we went through Revelation several years ago, I suggested you cannot understand Revelation without the Old Testament. And in fact, we go to First Chronicles chapters 24 and 25 to find the answer to our question, because here we are told that the divisions of the priests, those who are to serve in the temple, we have 24 divisions. There are 24 orders of priests and also of the singers, interestingly enough. They are to serve in the temple. This is the worship system in the Old Covenant. 24 divisions of priests and singers. These are those who are to lead worship. And we find that these 24 elders are sitting on thrones. The thrones indicate that they are kings. The 24 indicates that they are priests. So we have priest kings. This should ring a bell somewhere. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priest to serve his God and Father. Thus, the 24 elders represent the presence of God's people. These are those who worship God. What about the four creatures? Following the lead of others, I would suggest to you that they represent creation. The number four, I think, is very significant, as in the four corners of the earth, or the four winds, or the four points on the compass. And we see four different types of creatures. John Calvin wrote on this, By these heads all living creatures were represented to us. This is living creation. The fact that they are covered with eyes reflects, reflects the omniscience and the omnipresence of the Creator whom they worship. It may be, as some have suggested, that certain characteristics are indicated here. In fact, it is a rabbinic saying, the mightiest among the birds is the eagle, the mightiest among the domestic animals is the bull, the mightiest among the wild beasts is the lion, and the mightiest among all is man. One writer has put it this way, the four forms suggest whatever is noblest, strongest, wisest, and swiftest in animate nature. Nature includes man, is represented before the throne, taking in part the fulfillment of the divine will and the worship of the divine majesty. But the point should be clear that along with the 24 elders on the thrones, these four creatures worship God. And as John comes into the presence of the one who is to be worshipped, he finds worshippers who surround the throne. The four represent creation. The 24 represent the new creation, those who have been redeemed. Now, in fact, there may be differing opinions as to what the 24 elders and the four creatures mean. But the fact is, this is clear. They are there to worship God, and that's what they do. Verse 8. Day and night they never stop saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. 
Whenever the living creatures give glory, honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and say, you are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. What is worship? We see it clearly here in verse number 11. It means acknowledging the worth of someone or something. To say that something is worthy. It means recognizing and acknowledging that something is worthy of praise. And then it is, in fact, celebrating that worth of someone or something that is far superior to oneself. And so in verse 11, again, you are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. In chapter 5, we see a bit more about worship. Here John sees uh, a figure on the throne holding a scroll, and we come to realize as we read through Revelation that this scroll has in fact written down uh, God's future plans in which the world will be judged and healed. The problem is the seal is scroll, uh, the scroll is sealed and no one is able to open it. And if you look at verse number four, John's reaction, I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. As we've seen before, God has committed himself ever since creation to work through his creatures, to work through us who are made in his image. The problem is we have let him down. We are fallen. We are sinners. And so, at least at the beginning of chapter 5, it looks as though God's plans will be thwarted. What is written on the scroll cannot be opened and these things will not take place. But beside the throne appears a different kind of animal. Interestingly enough, we are told that he is a lion of the tribe of Judah. And then we are told that he is a lamb, looking as though it had been slain. The lion is the image of the Messiah from the tribe of Judah. And the lamb is the sacrifice for the sins of God's people, Israel, and the world. Both of these are found in Jesus. He is worthy. He alone is worthy to break the seal and open the scroll. And what is the response to this being? In a word, it is worship, because he is worthy. Look, if you would, at verse 9. And they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, because you were slain. And from your blood you purchased men for God, from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands, and ten thousand times ten thousand. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice they sang, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain, to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them singing, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. The four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. This is what worship is all about. It is the glad response of praise. 
It is directed as God as the creator, the one who made the world, but also as God as savior, the one who is remaking the world. If you wish, God of creation and God of new creation. This praise comes from his creation because it recognizes its maker. It also comes from a new creation because we recognize, we acknowledge the triumph of Jesus, the lamb. And this is the worship that is going on in heaven all the time. It is the worship that we are to join in on. And thus, to be a Christian, I think, begins, it must begin with worship. With that in mind, let me give you two principles for you to consider. I'll mention them again at the end of the sermon, but for you to consider. First of all, when it comes to the matter of worship, we need to acknowledge... Let me start over. Perhaps we don't acknowledge. We need to consider that you become like what you worship. You become like what you worship. We see this a number of times in the Old Testament, but usually in a negative vein. In Psalm 115. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name be the glory because of your love and faithfulness. Why do the nations say, where is their God? Our God is in heaven. He does whatever pleases him. But their idols are silver and gold made by the hands of men. They have mouths but cannot speak, eyes but they cannot see. They have ears but cannot hear, noses but they cannot smell. They have hands but cannot feel, feet but cannot walk, nor can they utter a sound with their throats. And in verse 8, those who make them will be like them. And so will all who trust in them. We become like the thing or the person that we worship. This is found also in Psalm 135. The idols of the nations are silver and gold made by the hands of men. They have mouths but cannot speak, eyes but they cannot see. They have ears but cannot hear, nor is there breath in their mouths. Those who make them will be like them, and so will all who trust in them. In Hosea chapter 9 as it recounts that infamous incident at Baal Peor. But when they came to Baal Peor, they consecrated themselves to that shameful idol and became as vile as the thing they loved. They became like the thing that they were worshiping. In this, in this, uh, in this vein, Paul's discussion of idolatry in the second part of Romans 1, I think, is worth considering. The worship that is in mind in these passages is idol worship. That is, giving worth or considering something worthy of praise and honor, something that is outside, something that is greater than yourself. And we give it to something or someone other than God. Rather than considering God worthy of our praise, our worship, that he is the most worthy, we give it to something or someone else. In a series that we began watching at Zim and Oscars, and then we've been watching it in Sunday School by Tim Keller, He says, an idol is the thing you get your identity from. Thus, in a real and sometimes subtle way, you become like what you worship. Which makes sense. If you worship something, if you say it is worthy, that you should praise it, you should honor it, then it makes sense that you would want to be like that thing. Why wouldn't you want to be like something that you worship? If you didn't want to be like it, then why are you worshiping it? 
The second principle to keep in mind with regard to worship is because we are made in the image of God, when we worship God, it makes us more human. It makes us as God intended us to be. We'll come back to that in a minute. Let's get back to the business of becoming like what you worship. N.T. Wright, who used to teach at Oxford, uh, writes about his time there when he was a chaplain. He was teaching as a professor, but he was also a chaplain. And he wrote, often, often some of the graduates, undergraduates, would come to say when they first arrived, well, you won't be seeing much of me because I don't believe in God. He would then ask them, well, which God is it that you don't believe in? Which would puzzle them. And they responded by talking about an old man with a beard and uh, sitting on a cloud and looking down and being cross with humanity in general and sending some people to heaven and some people to hell. He would then say, well, I've got some great news for you. I don't believe in that God either. Um, I tell you this because I think that most Christians fail in their worship of God because they have a bad view of God. And that's why worship isn't the first thing that comes to mind. It becomes the extra that they do in their lives, but it isn't the core. It isn't the center of what they do. If you think badly of God, that you think primarily of judgment, unlike what we read in uh, today in our prayer of confession, but also the promise of forgiveness, speaking of his being long-suffering and merciful, um, then it makes sense that you wouldn't want to worship him. Um, unless, and this would be a very pagan, very animistic, you want to appease him. You don't want to make him angry. You know, you just don't want him to be mad. But rather than seeing him as someone who is worthy of praise and someone who, in a sense, takes your breath away for his greatness, no, it, it's someone that you'd rather not think about. Perhaps now is not the best time, but I'm always reminded of uh, the movie, uh, and I'm forgetting the group now, the English uh, com- uh, comedic group, who uh, looking for the Holy Grail, and they come across these wild rabbits, and, or this wild rabbit. And anyway, they call up to God, and, and, and God is up there, and he's like, what is it? It's always, forgive me for this, and forgive me for that. Um, if that's how we think of God, then worship will not be the primary thing about us. It will be the extra. And, well, since we call ourselves Christians, we've, we've got to do something Christian. And if it's not going to be worship, then maybe, oh, well, I will think like a Christian or I will try to behave like a Christian. I'll, I'll hang out with Christians. Yeah, that's the Christian part of me. And then Sunday's extra. And instead of it being re- the re- reverse, where we start with worship, and then our thinking, our acting, the people we associate with, it flows from that. If we do not ascribe any value to God, except perhaps fear, that we fear him, then we need to start over. And the way to do that is to begin with theology, that is to study the nature and the being of God. After all, we are supposed to love the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. Worship is not a mindless activity. As we see in Revelation 4 and 5, it is for specific things that they are worshiping God, and they are worshiping the Lamb. 
this isn't mindless activity. Um, I've mentioned this before, but I'm, I'm always puzzled when I hear people say, usually before the lesson or the sermon, sort of the serious part, uh, we just want to worship God for a while and then, and then we'll get to the sermon. And, and I, I wonder, what does that mean? Does that mean for the first part we're not going to think? We're just going to sort of be emotional and then, okay, when we're done with that, we'll close that chapter and then we'll come and open the Bible and think seriously about what Scripture says. No, worship is not mental detachment. I think it is a vigorous engaging as we think about who God is and what he has done. What do they say in worship here in Revelation 4? Day and night they never stop saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. And then in chapter 5, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, because you were slain, and with your blood you purchased men for God, from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. Worship requires knowledge and thought. We need to learn about who God is and what he has done so that we can praise him more appropriately. As one writer has suggested, perhaps one of the reasons why so much worship, in some churches at least, appears unattractive to many people is that they have forgotten or covered up the truth about the one we are worshiping. We've forgotten who, in fact, it is we are worshiping. How are we to recover this? How are we to rediscover the truth of the one we are to worship? Stop and think a minute. Worship is the praise and adoration of God, the Creator. And in worship, we are to tell and retell and recount in different ways the story of God's creating the world and God's recreating the world through Jesus Christ. In telling the story of creation, we don't try to conceal its flaws. We don't act as though everything is fine, covering it up somehow in pious or sentimental language. Because if we do, then our worship simply becomes sentimental. We are to acknowledge that creation has gone wrong, that it has been corrupted and spoiled, and that there is a great fault that runs through it, that runs through us. And yet, we acknowledge that God has not abandoned his creation. And there is still something there. And then we celebrate what God has done through Jesus in seeking to reclaim, redeem his creation. And so we can glory in the promise of what Jesus has accomplished on the cross and that one day it will be finally finished. Telling the story, rehearsing the mighty acts of God, this is the heart of Christian worship. And where do we get the story of creation and the story of the new creation? In Scripture. Yes, we can look at creation, but it is in Scripture that we are told that God is the one who created the world and he is going to redeem the world through his Son. This is why at the center of worship should be the reading of Scripture. 
It's why we have the reading of Scripture in our worship from the Old Testament and the New Testament. The reading is not primarily to remind us, oh yeah, I'd forgotten that story or I'd forgotten that particular song. It is, in fact, a, a central way of celebrating who God is and what he has done. And as scripture is read, we have the preaching of the word, but we also have prayer and we have communion. It flows from the reading of scripture. Let's get back to the original point. Being a Christian begins with worship. And worship means acknowledging the worth of something or someone, recognizing and saying that that something or someone is worthy of praise and celebrating the worth of someone or something that is far superior to ourselves. To learn To relearn, to be reminded of the one we are to worship, requires, I don't think that's too strong a word, requires that we go to Scripture regularly. Without throwing guilt into the equation here, I'm going to make a huge assumption. Why is it that Christians do not read Scripture as they should? Why is not the reading of Scripture a central part of our lives? Well, there's laziness. There is that. Let's be honest. There's also familiarity. If you've read through the Bible once or twice or perhaps more often, or if you've been in church your whole life, oftentimes you generally know what's coming next uh, after what has been read. In the process, we forget what a treasure we have because we've become so familiar with it. I think that there's another problem, and it is the problem of pride. That is, in a real sense, we think we know all there is to know about Scripture, that it has nothing new to tell us. That's simply not the case. But let's say for the sake of argument that you had memorized the whole Bible, From the beginning to the end, you knew every verse by memory. Is your memory infallible? Well, let's suppose that your memory is infallible. What about a sense of wonder and affection? Those of you who are married in this past year, had three couples get married here at church. Um... You look at the same person every day. Familiarity? Do I not need to look at your face anymore because I know what you look like? Is there no affection? Is there no tenderness? As we come to Scripture, I fear, because of our pride, I know this. I know this. Zib read the end of chapter 6 from John. Chapter 7 is when Jesus goes up to Passover. His brothers say, listen, if you want to be famous, you can't stay here at home. You've got to go where the people are. And then there's chapter 8. It's like, I know this. But is there no sense of wonder? Is there no reverence? I think fear, uh, not fear, but pride. Pride can kill us if we're not careful. Then there is the problem of idolatry. That is, that we worship something or someone other than God. And because we do, that's where we put our money. That's where our emphasis is. That's where our energy goes. And if we do that, 
we can still call ourselves Christians and come to church on Sunday to worship God because that's icing on the cake rather than it being the center of the meal. It becomes the extra that we do. See, being a Christian is not primarily about what we do with our heads. It is not something primarily that we figured out with regard to our moral lives. I'm going to live like a Christian. It is not something in which we enjoy the company of other people who are like us. No, to be a Christian means to worship the true God. That is to be the beginning point, always. Always it is to begin with worship. But particularly today, it is the first day of a new week. It is the first day of a new year. It is good to be reminded of such things. Then one last thing, and I mentioned this, I said I would mention at the end of the sermon. Two principles that I would have you think about in the coming week. You become like what you worship. If worship is too difficult a word, you become like the person or the thing you admire. I mean, can you imagine that somehow you admire a smart-alecky person and that that will not somehow rub off on you? Someone who has a quick one-liner for every comment that is made? Someone who makes a joke about everything? You don't think that will rub off on you? We become like what we worship. And secondly, if we worship the true God, then worship makes us more human. God doesn't want us to be less human. We're made in his image. To be human is to be made in the image of God. And then we can be what God intends us to be. Those who carry his image. N.T. Wright mentioned that uh, in, in going to various museums and finding images of the various Caesars, he found it really interesting that these images are found outside Italy. They're found in Turkey, they're found in Greece, Palestine, and then go over to Spain. You find all these images of the Caesar. This is because there they didn't have TV or whatever. They didn't know what Caesar looked like. In Rome, people knew what he looked like. They didn't need his image. We are the image of God here in this world. And as we worship God, we become more human as he intends us to be. And we reflect his image to the world around us. It is in worshiping God that we can begin to carry out the work he's called us to do. So as we begin a new year, the place to begin is with worship. As we are God's people, the place to begin is with worship. It's not the tail end, it's the beginning of what it means to be a child of God. Let's pray together. Our Father, worship is one of those words that we're so familiar with that we sort of assume we know what it means. And we must confess that oftentimes it takes a second place or a third place, maybe even fourth or fifth in our lives. But to us, being a Christian is more about how you think and how you act and the people you hang out with rather than one who worships God. I thank you for what John saw, what he recorded in Revelation 4 and 5. How it instructs us that worship is what is going on in your presence 
We are to join in with that and with all creation as we have sung in our hymns today. Forgive us where, when we have marginalized worship. And by your spirit and your grace, may it become the center of our lives. And as we begin a new year, by your grace, may we be marked primarily by worship. Worship of you. To be honest, on our own, we are not capable of doing this. Our hearts long to make idols. It is in our sinful nature to want to put something or someone in your place. May your spirit work in each life in this coming year. May we put aside the idols that are in our lives. If we don't realize or recognize what they are, may your spirit open our eyes to see them. May we get rid of them and put you at the center of all things. We thank you for this day, this first day of a new week, this first day of a new year, that we could gather and worship you. May your spirit and your grace go with us as we leave this place. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand, please, as we sing the doxology together?